Father, thank you that you've gotten us this far and you've brought us through a great journey. You've opened our heart. You've opened our mind. You've challenged us. God, it's been good for us. And we thank you that we go all the way back to what you told us in the very beginning, that those of us that read this book would be blessed. And so tonight, I remind you of your word that you said those that read the book would have a blessing. And I ask you to bless every person in this room tonight. I ask you to bless their families. I ask you to bless their health. I ask you to bless their mind, their thoughts. I ask you to bless their finances, everything they touch. Lord, I thank you that you honor your word. And we've read through this. And I pray in the next two weeks as we conclude it that the blessing of the Lord will rain down on everybody that's been part of this class. And we will be able to say without fail, truly, we see a blessing that has come because we took this book to heart. And we give you thanks for it in Jesus' precious name. And you say amen. amen. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 9. This is part 2. We're going to be looking at the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. And then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come with me. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of the heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper, as clear as crystal. And the city was broad and high, with twelve gates guarded by twelve angels. And the names of the twelve tribes of Israel were written on the gates. There were three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west. The wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were written the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. When he measured it, he found it was a square, as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them 216 feet thick according to the human standard used by the angel. The wall was made of jasper and the city was pure gold as clear as glass. The wall of the city was built on foundation stones and laid with 12 precious stones. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were made of pearls. That's where we get the theology that Peter's sitting at the pearly gate. The twelve gates were pearls, each gate from a single pearl, and the main street was pure gold, as clear as glass. I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all of their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day, because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You say amen to the reading of the Word. <laughs> so I want to talk to you. I, I chose to make this a whole class because of uh, maybe just my own selfishness of trying to figure out this new Jerusalem that the Bible calls um, the wife of Christ, 
You can see in verses 1 and 2, we didn't read that. It says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven like a bride. And this has probably been, verse 9, has probably been to me a really interesting topic of who is the bride of Christ. You'll hear people say it's Jerusalem, uh, it's the church, uh, and it always kind of confused me of trying to understand it myself because I would be like, how could God marry the church if the church is his body? Like we are one with him, he's the head, we're the body. And I would always say, does he marry himself? Like it really confused me because many people say that the church is the bride of Christ and even though there's nowhere in the New Testament that says that, there's a lot of speculation that the church is the bride of Christ. But here's verse 9. He says, come with me and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And how many of you know where we're going to go when we try to figure it out? Genesis. Book of Genesis. <laughs> so, so that's where I decided to go. Let me figure out this thing called the bride and the wife. And the first time a bride and a wife is mentioned is Genesis. And so I just decided to go through uh, an understanding of this term bride and maybe out of understanding how God thinks about a bride, maybe we could come to, well, what does this bride of Christ that we just read about, this beautiful place, what is it really significant for us and why does it mean anything to us? And I hope I do a good job to do it. So let's go there. Book of Genesis. Maybe you know the story. The story goes like this. And God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man that he made. So before we ever get to this thing of Eve, who we would call the bride, and we would say that Eve is the wife, there's something that God begins to do that what I want to try to help your mind understand is rather than thinking the bride as just a single unit of a human, such as the woman is the bride, the man is the husband, and the one become two, I want you to see it that it's part of an entire system of the way God thinks. I, I think it's you know pretty clear we can say that the woman, the wife, is the bride when she marries herself. But the bride that's going to come out that we're going to label as the bride, Eve, who's going to be labeled as the wife to come, the bride-to-be. There's all this stuff going on that God is working to be able to bring about this person called the bride. And as we parse that through, by the time we get to the book of Revelation and we find a bride showing up again, it will hopefully become clear. But here's what we know to start out with. It had to start out with God in a place before there ever became a woman, God had to have this place, this, this existence of where him, his self could be. And not only his self, but that he could place the image of himself in this place. And so there's this working of God, this place called Eden that's very measurable. It was a garden uh, in Eden. Eden was the area that God created. And then in Eden, he, he planted a garden. We call it the Garden of Eden like that it was all just, you know, the Garden of Eden was the whole thing, but the way the Bible teaches it is Eden was the location, and then God planted a garden inside a town or inside of a place called Eden. So inside this garden, 
we, we know that there must have been kind of like a gate or a wall or something because when Adam sinned, God put a flaming angel with a sword to guard the way back in. And so the assumption is that something about the Garden of Eden was walled in in a special place because even Adam was to keep the beast of the field out and to tend it. So I don't know if God had a fence around it, a wall around it. I don't know, a moat. We, we really don't know. It's all speculation. But whatever it was, he put the man there. And when he put the man there, he starts trying to work out uh, the purposes of God in his life, but we come to a, a screeching halt. The screeching halt is Adam cannot find any animal to suit him. The Bible says that when he realized Adam was alone, God brought all the animals to Adam. And we say to name them, right? So duckbill platypus comes by, he goes, that's a duckbill platypus. And Adam in his Brilliance gets to name all the animals, but the reason they were paraded in front of Adam to name them is it comes that after it was done, there was no suitable person or animal for Adam. There was a recognition that there was something about these that were different from me and they don't fit with me. And so he had an opportunity to go, well, I can't marry the elephant, too big, that's got too long of a neck, don't want to marry that. And so it almost as if God brought the animals in front of Adam to call them what they were so he could have a revelation that there's something about him that's different. Because you, you have to know he's the first one. He doesn't even have in his mind what another one of these would look like. He, to our knowledge, he doesn't have a mirror to even know what he looks like, except maybe he could look like this, but in his face, unless he looked into the water, he really doesn't know. He's, he doesn't have a medical book to tell him that he's even a man. He just is aware, and in his awareness of all these animals, he realizes, I, I don't look like any of these. They don't fit me. And so in that, what happened is God said it's not good for him to be alone. So there's this, there's this thinking in the mind of God that there's before we ever get to the bride that God is already thinking there is going to be something that I do in himself. There's going to be something that I do that is going to answer uh, and I think what's funny, God is the one that defines him as being alone. We don't ever hear Adam going, I'm really lonely. He wouldn't even know to be lonely because there's no other human for him to have had any, any action, interaction with. So his loneliness would not develop within himself because he doesn't know he's even alone because God comes down and talks with him and he can talk with the animals and do what he does, but it's God who will say it's just not good for him to be alone. So there's something happening within the mind of God. As he looks at Adam, he realizes that there is a, another uh, level of his being that God is going to have to bring together to really bring about the glory of God on the planet. Genesis 2.21 So God calls the man 
to fall into a deep sleep. I think it's interesting in the story, it's not even like God tells him what he's going to do. He just puts him to sleep. I don't know if man didn't need to sleep. We don't know if Adam was just always awake or if every seven days he needed to take a nap. We don't know how the original man was, but God put him in a sleep. And when he slept, God does this weird thing of opening up his guts and taking a bone out and sewing him back up and out of a bone creates a woman. Which is strange because what we have is Adam is created out of dirt, but woman is created out of Adam, out of a bone. And he makes a woman and fashions it from the rib and then does something interesting. He brings her to the man. So that's, that's a thought too. And when he brought her to the man, at last... <laughs> He says, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. I don't know if God told him that he took a bone out. All right? I mean, God said, hey, I, I took a bone out while you were asleep and I made this. But we do know something is that she shall and will be called woman because she was taken from the man. So the first time we have this entrance of a bride, she's not even called the bride. She's not even called a wife. She's called a woman. And that woman is that there is this unity. There's this oneness. There's this completeness. There's this wholeness. There's this everything of perfection is now with me. And it was an idea that I didn't even have. And it was a thought process that I didn't even know. And it was a something in the mind of God that he did for me, but when he did it, it was everything I could ever need it to be. And he, and he calls it and says, because it was something that came out of me, which is weird that I didn't even know was in me. And I think it tells us something about God and, and why marriage was something God designed, because the weird thing is a sexualized country as we are now. We're very sexualized in our world. There was nothing about Adam that was thinking what this would be like. No consciousness at all of a being that's like him, but not like him, but him. And I don't, I mean, you can only fathom that when he looks at her and she's looking at him and he sees the shape of her body and the arms and the the skin and, and everything like him, he has this epiphany. I love how it says in, the, in New Living, at last. Meaning he was probably pretty frustrated that there was nothing that could do what this is going to do. But I do want you to know there's no way he could have ever dreamed it up. No way. And so when we talk about the bride, it's something that God has dreamed up that you and I would have never thought of and hence, therefore, when we come today and we talk about a husband and a wife coming together, it's very much what we can dream of because daddy left mother, mother married daddy, my uncle, my aunt, my this, my that, sexualized, we're going to go to a honeymoon, we're going to have a party, we're all going to dance, we're going to get drunk, we're going to just, oh, it's wonderful. Because marriage today is so desensitized into the reality of the spirituality of what it really was. 
It was the mind of God to accomplish the purpose of God by using man to show forth the glory of God, and it was never even in his awareness of what he was going to do. So here's what I take away from the bride with Eve. Just study, and I try to just kind of expand on it thought-wise for you. Number one, to understand the first time we come across a bride, Eve, we have to start with a place. To define a bride, we can't just say the name Eve. We can't have Eve without the Garden of Eden. All right? We cannot have Eve without a person named Adam. So all these things I'm going to show you, there's six of them, I believe. All these things I'm going to show you are going to be what it encompasses this one person we call Eve that really all this stuff had to happen or she would never be here. And then number three, a presence. There had to be something working with Adam because he couldn't accomplish it on his own. He couldn't make Eve on his own. So this Eve that's going to show up is is needing a lot of stuff to happen. And then out of those three things, the place, the person, and the presence, there comes Eve now. Adam is asleep, and out of Adam's side, God works this thing out. But she's still not his bride yet because he's still asleep. So God is working all of this out before we ever define who this woman is. And then the next thing that happens is they hook up and have a product of sons and daughters. They begin to do something weird because out of themselves they begin to produce themselves, which is strange. They begin to create of themselves, out of themselves, themselves. Which is where God was heading. But the end result of all of that is it would be a promise that they would have to rule and reign together. So the reality of the bride was that it it could produce a group of people that could reign. Without the bride, there is no sons and daughters, and with no sons and daughters, there's no way to rule and reign or anybody to rule and reign or to help govern the earth or to fill the earth or multiply it. But without... Eve, none of that's possible, but without a garden and Adam and God, Eve's not possible. Does that make sense? So when we, when we talk bride in our 21 mind today, 2021, we think, oh, she's beautiful. It's so-and-so coming through. Here comes the bride. And it's very much just a single person. But that woman that we call the bride who stands at the altar very much would never be there had there not been a place she came from and a father she came from and a mother she came from and was somebody's daughter who ended up to, well, hook up with another person. I mean, the woman we call bride who's so beautiful today has a backstory that really made her who she was. Does that make sense? It's not, it's not just the union where we go, oh, she's the bride. And the day she walks down the aisle, she becomes the bride. She was the bride all along. It was just, it wasn't revealed until the day of the wedding. 
But when she was two years old, she was going to be a bride because the process was working. Uh, And so that's kind of how it all starts in my mind. That these six things are going to play out every time we talk about a bride. Let's go to the New Testament. In the book of John, chapter 3, there's something interesting because, as I said when we began, there's nowhere in the New Testament that equates the church to being the bride. Jesus himself is not even married. He won't get married. But John chapter 3, he says, You yourselves can testify that I said, this is John the Baptist, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. Now, John does something interesting because he gives us the thought that Jesus is the bridegroom and he is going to marry somebody. I mean, that's kind of his prophetic thinking. He says, the friend who attends is the bridegroom and and I'm full of joy when I hear his voice. And then he even says, uh, the next verse, I didn't put it up there, but the next verse is, he must become greater and I must become less. So he even connects the bridegroom to Jesus. So now there is this thought, at least in the Hebrew mind, that God is going to marry somebody. And the reason they felt that way, and I don't have time to go there, but many of the Old Testament prophets would allude to the nation of Israel as being like a wife. God would say things, she's committed adultery against me. She's a prostitute. She's a harlot. You remember the story of Hosea. Hosea is probably the best example we have that God viewed Israel as a wife. He had married himself to her. And if we go back and we do those six things, I think it would be pretty clear that, that God had a, a, a Jewish nation. God had an Abraham. He picked him out. He took him to a land, a place. And out of that place, there was a Sarah. And out of that Sarah came a child. And out of that child came a nation. And God married himself to that bride, that woman he called Israel. So there is the thinking that perhaps the bride of Jesus is Israel. It's the Hebrew nation. I'm not opposed to that. I'll tell you what I think as we go through it. But at least it opens the potential that maybe who God is going to marry, Jesus, is not the church because we're his body. Maybe it's he's all along going to marry himself to the Hebrew nation, the Jews, which is what I've said most of this book is about. Here's a thought in Romans. And this becomes interesting because Paul says about the Jew... You must not brag to the Gentiles about being grafted in to replace the branches. The branches is the Jewish nation, and they're grafted in. He said, you're not the root, you're just a branch. In other words, what Paul is going to teach us in this is that the reason the Jews reject him kind of lets me be part of this, well, getting married to God, I guess. I can be born again now, which is a weird thought. I mean, we might look at it during our Holy Spirit teaching, but it's a weird thought to think that the reason you're sitting here today is because the Jews rejected him. Had they never rejected him, you might have never gotten in, but thank God for the beauty they did, and now you get grafted in, so maybe God is going to marry us. 
Maybe there is a wedding where he's going to unite with us. John 19, to show you that every bride and bridegroom goes through these six things. Now, there was a place where he was crucified and there was a garden. So as I'm thinking about the bride in the New Testament, and I I thought about the bride in the Old Testament came from a garden, it made me hop to the New Testament and go, well, if the bride in the New Testament is the bride of Christ, and the bride here was the bride of Adam, and the bride here is the first Adam, and the the bridegroom here is the last Adam, and the first Adam had Eve, and the last Adam had the church, and the first Adam had a garden, could the last Adam have a garden? So I tried to just start connecting the first Adam to the last Adam, and lo and behold, I came to Jesus himself was planted in a garden. It was the tomb they put him in, but John 19 says that that tomb was in a garden. So what we have from God's perspective is the same thing he did with the first Adam, he is going to do with the last Adam. The first Adam was in his image, and he was planted in a garden. The last Adam, Jesus, was his image, and he was planted in a garden. Now, when Adam was put to sleep in the garden, what did God do? Out of his rib came bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. As Jesus is in the tomb for three days under the will of the Father because he's totally subjected to what the Father is going to do. When he's raised up, out of the ground comes life with him. If you read the New Testament, there are like over 500 people are walking around on Easter. Could you imagine? I mean, we're focused on Jesus on Easter like, yeah, he came up. But could you imagine 500 more plus people just walking around town like, man, there goes Grandma, there's Uncle Bucky. Like that's how powerful this was that that this last Adam was planted but out of a planting God was going to work a work while he's in the tomb so that when he comes out of the tomb there is this joining together of believers with him who would become one with him. And that oneness with Jesus' resurrection it will be labeled the church. And so we find this scripture in Ephesians, together, Paul says, as one body, Christ reconciled both groups. There's that Adam and Eve thought. But this together body is Jews and Gentiles. And he reconciled them both by the means of his death. There's that planting in the garden. And he brought them together as one. So we do see that this thinking of a bride is working in the New Testament as well. The two, Adam and Eve in the Old Testament, becoming one, birthing out kids. They rule and reign. In the New Testament, the last Adam goes into the ground and the tomb in a garden comes up. He's made one with the believers. They are his body. They birth new believers and then they rule and reign on earth as well. And as the scripture says, as a man leaves his father and mother, here's what's interesting to me anyway, is that Paul takes the concept of marriage, which was started in the Garden of Eden, and reels it in to explain Jesus and the church. He uses that concept of marriage. 
So as Adam and Eve were a husband and a wife and a bride, so that perhaps Jesus, the last Adam, is the bride is his church. And out of that church is the, the Hebrew nation and the Gentiles. And then he calls it this. It's just a great mystery. But it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Which goes back to Adam and Eve. It's a mystery. And I say that usually at the weddings I teach and minister. I kind of always throw this in because it's just profound to me. Is that... A husband and wife standing in front of me, one plus one equals two, but not with God. One plus one equals one. And that's just mathematically impossible. So at every wedding, God is telling me it won't be logical to you. It's mathematically impossible and it'll never make sense because it's my mind. It's the mind of Christ. But Christ and the church are one. So I went through thinking that. I tried to just kind of ramble on it. But I went through, if, if the church is the bride, because we've already said Eve is, well, maybe it is the church because we're coming to who is the bride of Christ and what does it mean to you. We see the same six things. There was a place, and that was the garden of the tomb. There was a person, not the first Adam, but the last Adam. There was a presence. God was working with him to raise him from the dead. He couldn't do that on his own. There was another person... The believers, Jesus plus the believers, would become one with him. Just like Adam plus Eve would become one person. Jesus, united with his saints, becomes a person, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Becomes one with him. And then the product was what we call today the church and what we are the sons and daughters of God. And the reasoning behind that was to do, again, what they were supposed to do that we should be doing today is ruling and reigning. So it's the same uh, process just repeated in the New Testament as was repeated in the Old. Now the issue becomes Revelation just makes this huge leap when it says this, Come and with me and I'll show you the bride. And what I've tried to say is that the bride isn't just an individual person. It is a product of a working of God. So I hope I've done a good job to do that. That the, The bride is not just Eve. It's the whole package of God that produces this thing we call the bride. The same for Jesus. The bride is the church. But we don't just look at the church, we have to look at the whole package. There was, a, there was a father, there was a redemption, there was a death, there was a uniting, there was a product that came out of it. Now we end the Bible with something very strange. Come and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. I guess I kind of snicker because the Bible just tells us what it is. I kind of always thought, it's just so hard. It's such a hard subject. Even when I knew I was going to teach it, and I thought, this is just such a weird subject. But it just, John tells us. He says, so he took me to a high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. So now he even tells you what it is, that the bride of Christ is a city. It's It's not a woman. It's not a man. It's not the church. It's not the Jews. It's just... But if I'm not careful, I will miss any time we talk about a bride, what do we have to talk about? The whole package. 
We have to look at all of it and not just Eve and not just church and not just city. But if I put it all together, it's a pretty interesting concept that, that here's this city that is labeled like a, a, the, this is the bride. And you say, well, how would he marry himself to that? That's so weird. Like he marries himself to a city? That's a strange thought. But it is strange of how could Jesus marry a city? How does he, does he stand there with this city and he's got his arms and said, I now proclaim you my bride. But if, if I look at the city as a full package, it begins to make sense of why it's called the bride of Christ. Because it's going to unveil the entire purpose of God himself. Just as Eve unveiled the entire purpose of God, Just as the church unveiled the entire purpose of the redemption, so the heavenly Jerusalem will unveil, and this is a weird thought, it will unveil the entirety of God's work. Everything about God will be summed up in this city. This city will be the package deal of what God has been doing for millennia. He started with Eve to start working it. He started with the church to keep it moving. But now it's such a beautiful work that it can be contained in a city and explained as the fullness of everything we would ever know to be God. And that's why it's the last chapter we'll deal with. And that's why it comes down because inside this city is the fullness of God. It would be the definition of who he is if we tried to define him as a human. How could we work this out? Well, he tells us. He says, it's shown, verse 11, with the glory of God. You'll hear that all through Scripture, the glory of God. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper, as clear as crystal. The city wall was broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels. And the names of the... Twelve tribes of Israel were written on the gate. So now I I start pulling this city out. And I realize real quickly that it's full of stones. But the stones it's full with are some of the same stones that are in the breastplate of the high priest. That are part of the whole temple that, that is in the Old Testament. And I see these stones start showing up. And then all of a sudden there's these gates that are the twelve tribes of Israel. So now he's pulled into this city the whole working of the Old Testament, the whole working of the promises as he made, that all of the children that represented the high priest and their names were in the breastplate, they're all represented in the gates of the city. So he's already, this city is turning to the very beginning of time and saying, I'm going to express all of what I am in my glory, but I need to go back and I need to start with this... uh, this preciousness of the glory, the, the stones and the crystals, and the, because the beauty of the stones and the crystals, they were all created before Adam. So he even goes back before Adam, and he, he picks up that creation is part of this city. I am the creator of all. The rocks and the stones that I created in the original working of the earth, they will be part of the foundation of this. But out of that, I just didn't stop with dirt and stones and rocks that could praise me. Is I brought out a people of my own and they're going to be represented in the gates. So now we get this connection of the people of God in 
the 12 tribes. Verse 14, And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and in them were written the name of, and here's the word 12 again, the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Very interesting to me that now he's pulled in the New Testament. And the foundation of the apostles and the foundation of the prophets are part of this city. So now God's attached himself to creation, attached himself to the law and to the Old Testament and to the prophets, and attached himself to the Son, uh, the Lamb, which is the redemptive work, and attached himself to those who represented the work of the Lamb to carry on, which would be the church. So now in the very walls of the city is the entirety of what we would call the Bible story. So that God inside this city has written like, like it is an object lesson of the 66 books we call our Bible. It tells the story of it all. We can't even get into the city without going through a gate of the 12 tribes because what it's going to teach us is that the, the reality of knowing the glory of God could only be accomplished through the Jewish nation because they would be the ones that would usher in Jesus Christ. And that the city could only really stand on itself, not just for the gates, but because the 12 stones that represented the apostles that were really the foundation of what this was all about is it was all about that there would be this church that would be the pillar in the ground of truth. And so he puts that in the city. And then he says this, And the angel who talked with me held a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. And he found it was a square 1,400 miles high. So what I want to do now is just give you the the bride of Christ as I see it and what it is and try to explain it to where it will make sense for the future. It too has a place. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the city. And we could stop there and go, well, I guess that's it. But remember, it all is part of a package. So this city has a person in it called the Lamb of God. And it has a presence. God is now living with them. Not working with them, living with them. And there's another person that's part of this bride of Christ. It's the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. He married himself to them. He worked to work through them. And out of the 12 tribes and 12 apostles comes this product of redeemed humanity. All the people of the earth who have believed and have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. And the product of the promise is this city will display the glory of God. So that forever, for eternity, this city that we call the heavenly Jerusalem, that is called the Bride of Christ, this city will display God's glory. This is the essence of His glory. His presence is there. The Lamb is there. Those who believe are there. The testimony of the Old Testament are there. The testimony of the apostles are there. And so it all encompasses that what the bride of Christ is, and I wrote it out for you. It is the throne of God, the home of God, that will reveal the mystery of God so that the nations of God may walk in the light of God in order to bring glory to God. I will. 
if I was going to define who is the bride of Christ, it's the home of God where he actually dwells, the city where he dwells. That reveals the mystery of God. What is the mystery? God married himself to humans, married himself to Israel, married himself to the church, and out of those groups came one person, the body of Christ, so that the nations of God could walk in the light of God. We are the light of the world. Christ is the light of the city. In order, if you finish reading chapter 21, so the nations could bring glory to God. That's the best I could define the bride of Christ without just saying it's the church or it's the Hebrew, the Jews, or, and to try to make it as shallow. It's just what it seems to read is it's a city where God lives. But to really be the city, it has to encompass all this stuff to really be the city. Or it's just a, a house. And it's seemingly it's much more than that. Where it gets interesting, and this is kind of give your brain a, a little rest, is that it's been tried to be defined all along of what it's going to look like. A 1,400-mile cube city. These are just all little Google shots for you of humans trying to determine it, but obviously so bright and so beautiful that it, it lights the entire world. At 1,400 miles high, it would stretch up into our exosphere, which is pretty much outer space, 1,400 miles. I think the exosphere and thermosphere kind of ends at about 90-something miles, and you're talking 1,400 miles high. So to give you a perspective of this city, I took the North America and I put the dimensions of the city over it. So that's how big the city's going to be. It'll stretch from Savannah, Georgia, all the way up into Canada, all the way at the tip of Florida, and all the way over to about Santa Fe, New Mexico. And it will be just one big city. But the weird thing is it will be as high as it is wide as it is deep. Because it's a cube. I don't even think our brains can fathom a city that's 1,400 miles that will go as high as it does long as it does wide. That's going to fit a whole bunch of people in the cube. I took our map of the Middle East we started with and just thought I'd show it to you here because this is where it's going to sit. So it will pretty much encompass all of the land of promise. And I put the center point on Jerusalem. So I took the center of 1,400-mile cube and I put it on Jerusalem. And so it pretty much encompasses all of Egypt. I guess God's going to remind those that try to, you know, take his kids that his city will rule them. It will encompass all the area of the seven churches where Paul wrote to the churches so it's kind of strange. It's going to also encompass everything that the Bible tells us about God as we started out. The churches and all is going to fit within the realms of this city. Now, it does say this, outside the city will be the lake of fire. Outside the city will be the nations of the earth, but they will bring their glory into this city. So I, I put this out because we're going to talk in the book of Genesis. So... Uh, we'll look at this, but this kind of a, a bubble earth where it sits inside of a snow globe. But this is what it would look like, uh, where every eye could see him. 
which is kind of hard on a ball, right? It'd be hard for every eye to see him on a ball. Where it would light the whole world, if you're under it, it'd be hard. So it looks to be that the city's 1,400 miles high and sitting on the plane of the earth would light the entire earth. And the nations of the earth will bring their glory into it. And somewhere out there, I don't know where, I don't know if up under the earth in the foundations of it or somewhere out in darkness will be the lake of fire that will burn forever in darkness. But that's probably the best visual, and again, I'm not here to to teach on Genesis yet, but probably the best visual of what I could learn from the Old Testament about the earth, that would be kind of what it would appear to be sitting where Jerusalem is now, and then lighting the entire planet. There would be no need for sun, moon, stars, because the city itself and the Lamb and the believers would be the light thereof, which is a a weird thought. But I just don't think our brain can fathom 1,400 miles high. I mean, we fly at 36,000 feet. That's about five miles high. So, I mean, you're talking a long way. So that's the the new Jerusalem, and what that is going to tell me is that everything we're doing right now is part of a bigger plan. Everything you're doing right now is going to be part of you ruling and reigning, being part of that city and what's going on. And it even says, and the nations of the earth will bring their glory into the city, which tells me that you and I somehow, although there's water there, there won't be water in the new heaven and the new earth, we will be part of that process. Uh, And it's seemingly kind of strange that forever and ever and ever, nations will be bringing uh, their glory to the city. Here's what's even more strange. We don't know that when this is all said and done, if all the outer realms of darkness where there's no life on Pluto, there's no life on Jupiter, no life on Mars... If when all this plan is finally revealed, if life doesn't spring upon every planet, and we're not just ruling and reigning here, but the entirety of creation, heavens and the earth. I believe the reason the earth is so critical is it will be the home of God. doesn't mean there's not other things going on in the heavenly realms, but that this is where His home will be, which is what I'm going to teach in the book of Genesis My belief is what we're teaching our children that the sun is the center of the universe. The sun isn't the center of the universe. It came on day four. Earth is the center of the universe because earth is his footstool and earth is where his home will be and the world will revolve around God's home. And I think that's why evolution, I think that's why all the stuff we teach our kids today about uh, creation versus evolution and All of the stuff that the sun is the center and we're all spinning around it. And when the Bible teaches, it's the earth that is the foundation and the footstool of God. And so immovable, the Bible says. And so I'm excited to teach the book of Revelation because I think it will wake you up to uh, the book of Genesis to what I believe is really God is trying to accomplish here on this planet. That's the best I got for uh, the new Jerusalem. I hope it kind of helped you a little bit to understand what it is. Thank you so much for joining us on the Believer's Church YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Believer's Church, you can visit mybelieverschurch.com. 
If there is anything that you need prayer for, please email us at amen at mybelieverschurch.com. Be sure to check back next week for a brand new message. 